Good morning. In the words of my sweet friend, Susan, will you please stand while I read the word of God? I'm reading Matthew chapter 26, verses uh, 17 through 29. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for you, it would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Good morning, everybody. Boy, I am so glad to have an extra hour for the sermon today. And I can tell that we got an extra hour of sleep. Everybody's singing so loudly today. We should maybe move to 11, I think, in the future. So as, as we're headed towards the holidays, you're probably thinking about holiday plans and celebrations. And the centerpiece of most celebrating in our world today, the same as it was in the first century, always has one common characteristic, food, a meal. If you think about it, there's very few times that you get together with people that doesn't involve getting around a table of some kind and eating together. If you think about our holidays, I mean, Christmas, you eat, there's presents, you eat, maybe more presents, and then you move on the next day and repeat and recycle and do it again. But Thanksgiving is shameless. There's not even any presents. You just eat until it's time for leftovers, and then you eat those. I mean, it's, it's a very American holiday. So, in the first century, the, the equivalent was the celebration of Passover. Passover was a holiday that had rich, deep meaning. It was an Independence Day kind of celebration for the people of Israel, and they had very special food that you would eat. Now, in my family, we're not Jewish, but we have carried over this tradition. We have eaten the same food at the same meals for the same holidays, I mean, since our family came over into the new country. And a Jewish kid would have been able to tell you just by about the age of six or seven, here's what you eat, 
here's what you say, here's what happens, here's who talks, here's what you do next. It was part of the rhythm of their life to celebrate the Passover. It was a memory of what God had done for them, that they were to keep close to their minds every year celebrating what had happened when God brought his people out of Egypt. I don't know if you've thought about the fact, though, that that Jesus perfectly embodies this tradition. If you were to go through the Gospels with a highlighter and just highlight every meaningful conversation and event and instance where Jesus is eating with people, your Gospels would be bleeding with highlighter because most of Jesus' ministry took place around the table. In fact, one commentator put it this way, of all the means by which Jesus could have chosen to be remembered, he chose to be remembered by a meal. What he considered most memorable and characteristic of his ministry was table fellowship. The meal, one of humankind's most basic and common practices, was transformed by Jesus into a divine encounter. It was the sharing of food and drink that he invited his companions to share as they remembered the grace of God. This morning we're talking about the Last Supper. We're talking about communion. And if you just step back from it, it it can become so familiar to us if you've grown up in the church or if you spend much time in church that we come and we take bread and juice and that seems normal. But, But think about what we're doing for a minute. We're celebrating a meal together, a giant meal, and for for reasons of scale, we do it with these little Happy Meal-sized bites, but what we're doing is we're recreating that night that Jesus sat down with his disciples, And and if you remember, when he's sitting there with his disciples, the thing that he commands them to do is, when you do this, remember me, remember me. But there's actually more of a command than that. This is not just something that concerns 12 disciples in the first century. Pretty soon, the early church began practicing this immediately. And and in Acts, they were probably doing it every day together. They were gathering daily to break bread and to pray. And, And in the early church, they had what are called agape feasts, where they would actually get the whole group together and have a giant meal together to celebrate communion. Jesus isn't just doing this for his disciples. It's it's almost as if Jesus is commanding us through the text to pull up a seat to the table of the Last Supper. Think about when, when you come forward later this morning to take communion, you're obeying the command that Jesus gave all of his disciples. Do this when you gather together. Pull up a chair to this table and remember me. So the question for all of us would be, what are we doing at this table? It makes sense for the disciples. They'd spent three years with Jesus. They'd been around him all the time. They were Jews. They were celebrating the Passover. But how did you and I get invited to this table? What are we doing sitting with Jesus and his disciples and taking part in this meal with him? Well, this morning, I want to point out three things that we are doing when we take communion together, three things that are happening at this meal. And and maybe over those three things, I just want to turn your attention to the fact that communion is the thing that ties your entire Bible together. There is nothing in your Bible like communion that reaches as far back into the Garden of Eden in the first chapters of the Bible. 
and to the very end of Revelation where there's a great wedding supper of the Lamb at the end. Communion, this central meal, is the most important reality for all of history that we would eat in the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, as I mentioned earlier, when they sat down for this meal, they had no idea it was going to be that kind of meal. They, they thought it was going to be a regular old Passover ceremony. And like I said, Passover had gotten so routine that anybody could have told you what happens in this meal. And they would have celebrated this their whole lives with their families. Now they're celebrating it with this new family, with Jesus and the other disciples. And Jesus is taking the part of the host of the Passover meal. So, you know, in each family, usually the father is the one who's hosting this meal. But every meal has a host. And Jesus, over and over and over again in Scripture, becomes the host of the meals where he is. You even think about the time when he goes to Simon the Pharisee's house. He's at Simon's house, and a lady comes in, and everybody's embarrassed, and Jesus takes over hosting the meal. When he's at Zacchaeus's house, he invites himself to Zacchaeus' house. As we talked about last week, there's a radical conversion that takes place in Zacchaeus' life such that Jesus is now hosting the meal at Zacchaeus' house. With his disciples, he just tells them, I wish we had time to spend on this, but he just tells them, hey, I've got this house picked out. They're like, do you know this person? He's like, no. But just tell them that the master needs their house for Thanksgiving. Can you imagine if you got your family, you're set, you're coming to Carlton Landing to have Thanksgiving dinner, and you get there, and there's already cars and golf carts. There's a guy that says, the master needs the house. You're like, the master just pulled up to the house, okay? He says, I've got it picked out. I've got it taken care of. I'm hosting this meal at somebody else's house, and that's how we're going to celebrate communion together. The meal begins with a prayer of blessing. In fact, this prayer of blessing is repeated over and over in the Passover, what's called a Seder. Blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Jesus begins that, but then the Passover ceremony starts to get a little weird. This is, this is where the disciples are making side eyes at each other, like this is not the way the script goes. Jesus takes bread and begins to break it, and instead of saying the blessing that you would expect, he says, this is my body, which has been given for you. He takes the cup, and as we'll talk about in a minute, there's a very specific thing that you're supposed to do with the cup, and, and Jesus says, this is my blood which is going to be shed for you. This is a new covenant. Jesus does at this table what he does throughout every part of his life. He takes something familiar to us and he reinterprets it so that we'll never see it the same way again. In fact, th this is one of the great things that Jesus does is he takes something that we're familiar with. He says, this is actually that. This is actually that. This, this bread that you see this isn't just a celebration of Egypt and the freedom there. This is the body of the Lord, which has been broken for you. The first thing that Jesus reinterprets is blessing itself. There's, there's four cups in the Passover, four cups of wine. If you've been to a Passover Seder, you know this. There are four big cups of wine at the Passover, and they all correspond to a, a, a template that's laid out in Exodus chapter 6. The first cup is salvation. He, God says to his people, I will bring you out from Egypt. 
The second is deliverance, and I will deliver you from under the slavery of the Egyptians. The third one is a cup of redemption or a cup of blessing, and I will redeem you. And the fourth is a cup of promise, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And over the course of the meal, when you share these four cups, you move through each one of these cups and you talk about salvation and deliverance and blessing and promise, and you relive what God has done to accomplish those things. And what Jesus does is he stops with a third cup and begins to change the script. And so he goes through salvation, he goes through deliverance, and when he gets to the cup of blessing, he begins to do something a little bit different. See, see the blessing that they were accustomed to was God delivered our ancestors from slavery. Jesus taking the cup, and Paul, Paul tells us this because he says, this cup of blessing, the cup that you take in communion is the cup of blessing. This cup of blessing that we bless, it is a cup of union between Christ and his church. Jesus takes this cup, and when he gives thanks, he begins to talk about a new blessing that we have. See, the thing about communion is there's something much greater than freedom from slavery, human slavery, that's being promised to you at this table. The, the, the problem that we have is so much greater than that we have found ourselves in slavery in Egypt. The problem that we have is we have found ourselves of our own doing in slavery to sin. And, and, the, promise, and, and, and the problem for us is not we will work hard and we won't be appreciated and we won't be paid and we will die, but then we will be rewarded. The problem for us is we will rebel against our maker. We will side against him and when we die, we will find ourselves at the mercy of his wrath and judgment. Jesus has warned throughout his ministry. In fact, if you've been here the last few weeks or if you know what precedes this in Matthew, Jesus has been talking for about four chapters about judgment, right? The end of the world and the destruction of Jerusalem and the cursing of the fig tree. The, the shadow of judgment is heavy on the disciples as they listen to Jesus say, there's actually something a lot worse than slavery that your ancestors had. Slavery to sin is the chronic part of the human condition. But the flip side of that is the blessing of this cup is both greater and more personal than what they had been celebrating their lives in the Passover. In fact, the Passover was just a way of preparing them to understand a greater truth than that our ancestors were slaves in Egypt and they were delivered. The truth of the cup of blessing that we share together is I was a slave to sin and have been set free. It's personal. Jesus says, this is my body, which is given for you. In the Passover ceremony, it was, this bread is what they ate when they were delivered. This bread is what you eat because you have been delivered from sin. The fourth cup, this is really pretty fascinating. The fourth cup is the cup of promise and in a normal Passover meal, you would drink this cup because there's the promise of the Messiah who is going to come. There's, there's the promise that God is going to return and make good on everything he said. And they don't drink the fourth cup at the Passover. Jesus says at the end of this, if you look back at our passage in verse 29, I tell you the truth. Remember, this is Jesus holding this cup of blessing, the third cup. I tell you the truth. 
I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it with you in the kingdom of my Father. Our life is between these two cups. The cup of blessing that Jesus has secured for us, his blood that has been poured out. And so you know from now on, if you trust in Christ, you have been blessed by God, but, but you also know that there's a promise that's not yet fulfilled. There's a promise that we are still waiting for. This cup of promise is the cup that we will drink together in the new heavens and the new earth when we pull up a seat to the table of the wedding supper of the Lamb. You know, this is amazing for us because it means we know our storyline. We know, we know the storyline of our life. We are living from a cup of blessing to a cup of promise. Every time we take this cup together, we're saying the cup of blessing is here and the cup of promise is to come. And God will make good on that promise. This reminds us too, who's invited to this table? Who's invited? If you're living between the blessing and the promise, who's invited? Not the people who are good enough. The people who understand that they are not good enough. The people that are invited to Jesus' table. Remember, the most trouble that Jesus gets in, and, and in fact, part of the reason that they decide to kill Jesus at the end of the Gospels is he's eating with all the wrong people. He's, he's going to all these parties with tax collectors and sinners and people that you wouldn't speak about in polite company. Jesus invites people to his table that have no way of getting there outside the grace of God. Remember when Jesus says, when you have a banquet, don't just invite all the good people. Don't invite the people that will make you look good. Go invite the people that could never come. They would never be invited. Invite the people out in the streets and tell them to come and feast at your table. Bring the people who could never repay you by inviting you to something similar at their house. Go and get those people. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He didn't, he didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. So the only person that's not invited to this table is either the person who thinks that they are too good and don't need the grace of God, or the person who's unwilling to surrender and say, all I need is the grace of God. This, by the way, is the reason that we say, if you're not a Christian, don't come to this meal. It means nothing. It means nothing. Take Christ instead. We would much rather you take Christ and surrender to him than come take this meal. It means that the people invited to the table are those who are committed to Christ and being transformed by him. One pastor that wrote a devotional on communion put it this way. He said, you are not being given bread and wine for being a good person. You are being given bread and wine so that you might grow up into a good person. You are welcome not for what you've done, but because of what God has done and intends to do in your life. Amen. Another way to put this is people who are full are not invited to the table. It's people who are hungry that come to the table. So in committing ourselves, Jesus redefines blessing for us, but he also redefines love for us. This this ceremony is kind of going off the rails right now, if you ask the disciples. The things that are being said right now, this is getting wild, because it's not just that it's departed from a traditional Passover meal. We've passed that many sentences ago from Jesus. It's that the ceremony is actually sounding like something very different. If you come to our Maundy Thursday service, we talk about this. It's not sounding like a Passover anymore. It's sounding like a wedding. This has gotten weird. Jesus is doing what a groom would do with this cup. See, in the ancient world, what would happen is uh, a father and a son would go to the dad of a daughter, and they would begin to talk about getting married. 
and when they agreed on the terms of the marriage, they would get the four people together. The young man, the young woman, and, and their families would get together, and they would have a betrothal ceremony. So this is what, this is what Mary and Joseph had done. Is they, they were betrothed. It's like their version of engagement, except it's, it's so, there's so much more commitment in it, it's much more like our version of marriage. And what would happen at this ceremony is they would, they would have everything arranged, and the father and the son would take a cup, and they would drink the cup, and, and the son would pass it to the daughter. And the, the daughter would have the choice then to drink the cup and pledge herself to her husband, or to let the cup pass and void the arrangement. The disciples sitting there had to have been thinking, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He takes the cup and he says, this is me for you, my life for yours. Will you take this cup? It's almost as if Jesus is offering at this table to everyone sitting there, I love you, so much so that I'm going to give my life for you. What do you say in return? The marriage ceremony for them was so powerful in its imagery because after this, if, if the young woman drank the cup, what would happen is, Father and son would go away and begin to build onto their home so that they could come and bring the daughter into a new home and into their new life together. And then they would have the wedding celebration. And so what happens is the son and the father, when this is done, they go back and they start getting supplies and they begin to prepare a place. Well, John tells us what was being talked about at the dinner that night. Before they get into the Passover ceremony, or, or maybe even in between these two cups, you get this long speech that Jesus makes in John 14 through 16, where he says things like, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my Father's house, so that where I am, you can always be. I, I'm not leaving you alone. I will return for you. And when that day comes, when Jesus returns, we will be joined with him inseparably, forever, at a wedding banquet. Can you see how powerful the imagery is here that Jesus is presenting to his disciples? This is an offer of his life. Like, the closest thing that he can say is, it's like a marriage. That's how much I'm committing to you. And when you come to communion, you are committing yourself to him. You are taking the cup and saying, I'm in. His life for mine, my life for for his, until he returns to take his bride to be with him forever. There's a new kind of love in this commitment. There's a blessing in this commitment. The second thing I want you to see, though, is we're not just committing ourselves to him, we are communing with him. So, so we're talking this morning about communion, or the Last Supper, or the Eucharist, or the Lord's table. We have so many different words for this. And I, I kind of got interested this week, why do we have all these terms for this? There are few things in Scripture that are more controversial than communion. How often should you do communion? Who can take it? Should you have bread and juice? Should you have bread and wine? Do you have one cup, multiple cups? Do you sit? Do you stand? I mean, you can find every version of communion. And in fact, down to what it's called, probably in this room we have four different terms representative. What exactly are we doing here? Well, these terms are taken from the biblical passages that describe what Jesus was doing. 
You know, the term Eucharist is just the Greek word for giving thanks. When Jesus takes the bread, he gives thanks. That's the verb Eucharisteo. So we just shortened it and said, we're just going to call it Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. Paul says, is this not the Lord's table, the table of the Lord that we gather? Is this not his supper that we eat? I like to call it communion because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is writing to the Corinthians about doing this meal together. And, and, and if you've studied Corinthians at all, or if you've read any part of it, you realize the, the church in Corinth, or the churches in Corinth, were the most dysfunctional group of churches ever. I mean, there, there were some crazy things going on in the church at Corinth, so much so that, you know, we say sometimes we want to get back to the first century church. I do not want to get back to the church of Corinth. There are so many things going on, and communion is one of the hot spots. What's happening is they're having these meals, and when you come to church, you're ready for a meal, but the rich people are bringing like all kinds of wonderful wines and cheeses and meals and all that, so much so that when you get the good seats, by the time the poor people get in, the rich people are already drunk. They're, I mean, they're already really enjoying communion. And, and Paul's like, no, stop doing that. And he says, at the same time, you've got this chaos going on when you worship together. People are standing up, they're speaking in tongues, and there's messages, and there's songs. It's like one at a time, people. That's, in fact, you could sum up the whole first part of 1 Corinthians with just that line, one at a time. Paul says, when you come together to celebrate communion, this is not just an individual meal. This is not just because you're physically hungry. There's, there's actually something deeper going on that you need to observe. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when he starts to spell this out, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? And I just want to point out, this, this word, participation, is the word koinonia, which means fellowship or communion. You know, the English word communion means to be united together. Union together, communion. And that's what this word means. And I want to point out to you how many times it shows up in this passage. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a communion in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a communion in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body because we are communers of the one bread together. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat sacrifices, communers in the altar together. I mean, Paul is really trying to drive the point home that, that it's more than just an empty ritual that we come up here and we do this. It is a means by which God brings us together. He unites us as one because we share the same table. We who are many, different backgrounds, different jobs, different outlooks, different ethnicities, different everything, have become one because we share the same meal at the same table. We are being united each week, not just together, but with Christ, a union with him. See, this is when things start to go badly for Jesus in the Gospel of John, as he starts saying things like, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can't be my disciple. There's a reason in the first century of the church they thought the Christians were cannibals. Because they were using this metaphor like, until you feast on the Lord, you cannot be his disciple. Now, now, 
Thank goodness for similes. <laughs> because this would be a very different, this would be a very different celebration if not. This is my body. This bread is my body, which means you become what you eat. You become what you eat. When we eat this meal, we are feasting on our food that makes us like Christ, that actually powers us to be more like him. There's a wonderful passage on communion. It says the wonderful exchange that takes place in communion out of Jesus' measureless benevolence. He has made with us becoming son of man with us. He has made us sons of God with him. That by his descent to the earth, he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us. By taking on our mortality, he has conferred his immortality upon us. Accepting our weakness, we can be strengthened by his power. Receiving our poverty unto himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. Taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself, he has clothed us with righteousness. We come to this table to commune with Christ and with each other. Now, the, the practical part of that is, and this is, this is something I think that we get wrong a lot, is this is not confession. It is communion. Confession is important, and you should be doing confession. But communion is not primarily a moment to confess. If you want to do that, that's always a good practice. But, but I worry that it has become subsumed in confession so that when we stand up and we come up here, I mean, it is a dour uh, view a lot of times. It looks like everybody's being called up to the principal's office when they come up to take communion. This is, this is not a confessional. This is a community meal. Right? The, the environment should be less. Everybody's shuffling with their heads down and more joyful. This, this is like what you should think of as a holiday meal. It's a time when you should see people throwing their arms around each other and we're singing worship as we come and there is a heaviness to it. But there's a celebration to it, right? This is kind of a mini picture of the whole Christian life, sorrowful, but always rejoicing, Amen. remembering the death of the Lord and his resurrection, remembering what it took to purchase us back from our sins, but, but also what waits for us in heaven. This, this communion is a joyful, wonderful time together, celebrating, remembering what Jesus has done. Now, here's the third thing and the last thing. When we come to this table, we commit ourselves, we commune with one another, but we also commemorate the death of the Lord Jesus. We commemorate the Lord's death. You know, in fact, this is really the command in 1 Corinthians is Jesus describes what's going on, but he says, do this in remembrance of me. Commemorate means to remember together. Celebrate the Lord's death. Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. I want to just focus here at the end on this line where Jesus says, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's two phrases here I want to bring to your attention. Take, eat, and for you. Take and eat. This, this, this is a, an amazing biblical phrase. Take and eat would maybe make us nervous if we heard that coming from Jesus. In fact, the disciples, I wonder if they were a little bit nervous. I, I learned this from a pastor named Ligon Duncan because the connection that they would have thought of is 
The last time take and eat was said, things didn't go very well in the garden. See, the the garden had one commandment, do not take and eat of this tree. And Satan comes to Eve and he says, no, 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 why don't you just take and eat? Why don't you just take and eat? And, and, And in that moment, sin enters the world and death enters the world and everything spirals out of control. And thousands of years later, you have Jesus say, take, eat, take and eat. It's a a reminder to us that for all of history, God has been undoing what happened in the garden. The expulsion of Adam and Eve, the entrance of death into the world, the dissipation of relationships between people. And in this moment at the table, Jesus uses the same words, the same act, the same everything to remind us, Jesus is undoing the curse of the garden. He is eliminating death forever. He is bringing us back into the presence of God. He's bringing us back into relationship with each other through the same thing, eating something that is forbidden and eating something that is given and blessed and broken for you. Those last words are maybe the most important words of communion, for you. This is the radical difference between what the disciples were hearing on that night celebrating Passover And what they'd heard every time before that is, this was something that happened for them. But now, communion is something that has happened to you. Jesus' body wasn't just broken historically for a group of people over in the Middle East. You have been called to this table because Jesus gave up his life for you. For you. Communion is where we make the death and resurrection of Jesus our very own. We commemorate that Jesus didn't just die. He died for me. He died for me. This is my body, he says, which is given for you. So Jesus' death and his resurrection that would happen just a few days after that are what we are commemorating every time we come to this table. You've been invited, not because you're worthy, but because God's grace is sufficient for you. Not because everything has already happened, but because we are looking forward together to the day when God makes all things new. We're we're coming here not because of something that just happened in the past. We're, We're coming here longing for the words that are at the end of Revelation. Behold, the dwelling of God is with man, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. And we will drink the cup of promise with Jesus forever. So this morning as we celebrate communion, as we stand in a moment and celebrate this, people will come forward to serve us and they'll hold the bread and they'll say, this is the body which is broken for you. And they'll say, this cup is a new covenant in Jesus' blood which is given for you. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming what we've talked about this morning. I'm committed to him. I'm communing with him. I'm commemorating him because one day He will come again and take us into his Father's house and we'll be with him forever. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that this visible activity that we get up and we get our bodies involved in it, it is a reminder to us of how real our faith is. How real the sacrifice was. That your son died, was torn apart, shed his blood, 
so that we can celebrate this meal. And even deeper than that, Lord, so we can celebrate that we have a seat at your table forever. Father, we love you this morning. We commit ourselves to you. Lord, as people who are being transformed or following Jesus, help us to be more selfless with each other. Help us to put our sins to death. Help us to love you and love one another as you've commanded us because we've eaten this meal together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we stand, come and welcome to Jesus Christ.